hard, driving on, keeping the ball alive. Doggy Vier is almost like a back row forward. And great stuff there by Doddy Weir, who, uh, when he goes like that, he's like a mad giraffe, but he's got great skills. Hello and welcome to episode two of our Dodcasts. We are back in Edinburgh, uh, and thank you for listening to our initial opening effort. Um, good fun making it. We were all a bit worse for wear that day, but we're a bit more professional today. And thank you to Aberdeen Standard Investments, our friends and supporters of our Dodcast. Also to Rugby Pass uh, and to Tim Groves, our lovely producer, the font of all knowledge, as he's known. And also welcome to our guests on the Dodcast. It wouldn't be a Dodcast without Doddy. How are you doing? Jill, very well. Good to see you, young man. And also, we've got two new guests. We've biffed off Kenny Logan uh, and we've upgraded significantly. And we are welcomed by Sean McGrath and Professor Martin Turner. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves because they've both got such incredible credentials. So uh, I'm Sean McGrath and um, I am the medical strategy lead for the My Name's Doddy Foundation and uh, my background is I was in the pharmaceutical industry for many years and then I ran a communications company and now I'm a management consultant and I have the great pleasure and privilege to help the foundation uh, make the right choices in their investment working with a great team of, of experts such as Professor Turner and about 10 other colleagues in decide how we invest our very hard earned cash from the foundation into meaningful research for motor neuron disease. So that's me. I'm uh, Professor Martin Turner and I'm a, a professor of clinical neurology and neuroscience at the University of Oxford. Uh, I'm very lucky to be able to spend most of my time working on research for motor neuron disease, which I've done for the last 20 years, uh, as well as being a consultant neurologist uh, within the hospital. Well, we're delighted that I'll you're... I'll tell you what, Jill, it beats my HMD <laughs> in agriculture, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but you've got an honorary well, doctorate. Ah, oh, there's a few awards been since then, thanks to everyone's generosity and support, but it's great to be in the same room as these lovely guys, and yourself, obviously, because you're taking charge of the foundation. <laughs> now, let's find out how you are at the moment then, Doddy, because uh, lots of people saw you in the documentary that came out uh, just before Christmas, and also enjoyed seeing you at Sports Personality of the Year, where you received the Helen Rollison Award, and we got a wonderful response to that, but... The film, the documentary, which was made by BBC Scotland, was received very well by by many, many people who were touched by that and moved by it, by your very honest sharing of, of, of how you're coping with MND. So tell us how you're feeling at the moment. How are you doing? Thanks a lot to bad, Joe. Yeah, it's been a busy year, 2019. Uh, the documentary was a two-year operation, thanks to BBC. And more importantly to John Beatty, his involvement was was amazing. Um, it just showed the awareness and so with myself, I think as a patient, we forget, yeah, we're in a bad way, but also the encounters are behind the scenes to wife, family, kids, friends, and, and with that it just shows the help that's required with someone with MND and the impact that it has. And But you mentioned also the awards. The awards have been amazing. The Helen Rollison was just the most amazing experience that you could spend with your family. But again, I feel a little bit guilty that uh, I'm taking all the accolade for a lot of other people's hard work. Um, so I've got to thank everyone and really dictate that the awards and all the awards we've got to all the all the people behind the scenes who have helped i might be fronting it but there's a lot of hard work goes on behind the scenes and we we are able to announce some trials in 2020 so it's been a good year we were recently got a portrait in the national portrait gallery of scotland we who were there last thought? night it was a an amazing evening a who would ever portrait? thought that yeah. would have happened as you say i'm no <laughs> oil painting but it's here you are now you are now well, no, walk so but physically I feel that I'm battling MND a little bit more than I used to be uh, by that I mean that it takes a bit longer in the morning to to get up and get the body going eating and showering is a bit harder we're adapting a bit more than we used to be so it's lovely to have Professor Martin in the room and discuss the ongoings and what can maybe help to try and slow that down Anybody listening will notice your voice has definitely changed a little bit, Doddy. Are you aware of that? Can you sense that yourself? Yes, I am. Especially later on in the evening, I seem to, to get 
fatigued a little bit more, quite a bit more tiredness. So when I stand up at functions, I have an issue in my neck and my back gets a bit sore. But sitting down seems to be okay. Uh, but yeah, generally, I've got to, if I speak a little bit slower, then I pronounce the words were not too bad, but it's certainly a bit of a slur. It doesn't help when I take a bit of Guinness in my either. <laughs> so do you plan your day around the fact that you get tighter in the evening, afternoon? Unfortunately, Sean, I don't. Okay. Because we've got a few functions at night that just to, that happen. I go and see a chiropractor at night as well, just the way that the timetable works. It's just one of these issues I think might not come on to it. So it does affect your voice. And again, I am very lucky. And I look upon the luck. I don't know why I'm still here, still pretty active. I'm still driving, uh, still pretty independent uh, after three years, after or just over three years of diagnosis. And as we know through the foundation, we get emails of people have maybe got three months and unfortunately they're no longer here. So three years still in. Still can walk, still can talk a little bit, still can drink, party and drive. I see I'm not too bad. I think it'd be useful and helpful if we had a little bit more about the disease itself. And, and we're going to talk about how you manage that day to day, Doddy, and, and, and the different ways that you have adapted and some of the different things that you've tried to help with the, with the situation. And, and Martin's best placed to tell us about that. In layman's terms, what, what exactly is MND, motor neuron disease? Yeah, well, motor neuron disease, and we sometimes call it amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. I'll come back to that. But if I use those terms, MND and ALS, they mean the, the same thing. It's a, one of a family of conditions called neurodegenerative disorders. And that includes more common things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And we think that selective parts of the brain are aging faster than we would expect for someone's uh, natural uh, lifetime and age. And the cells are losing control of mechanisms that they would normally um, have very tight control over, uh, something called uh, protein management. And parts of the brain start to degenerate. And in motor neuron disease, it's particularly the connections from the motor cortex of the of the brain, the messages that come down the spinal cord and into the muscles of the, the face, speech, uh, the arms and the legs and breathing. Um, and they gradually disconnect and the muscles become weaker. And because they're not getting their electrical input, they often also waste a little bit. So people notice that their muscles are losing the, the size that they normally had. And just how common is it? Because we hear you've a one in 300 chance of being diagnosed with MND in your lifetime. How many people tend to be suffering from MND in the country at one time? Yeah, I think it's interesting that I find that a lot of people, most people know somebody, a friend of a friend who've had this condition. It's not as rare as people think. And actually, if we were to take the figures for MS, um, which is regarded as much more common, the incidence, so that how many new cases occur of MND is not a great deal less than MS. It's not that dissimilar, really. It's the prevalence and how many cases are there at any one time. And that's the difficult aspect is that MS is a much longer condition. Um, and so uh, there are uh, relatively fewer patients uh, with MND at any one time. But the actual incidence is you know, higher than people think. How aware were you, Doddy, of MND when you first, because you first began to almost self-diagnose, didn't you? So, uh, you know, was it something that you were aware of? I, I mean, I had, you know, anecdotal experience of it. I knew a couple of people, but my understanding of motor neuron disease was, was Professor Hawking. Yeah, on my view, probably not totally aware of what it was all about, but our rugby colleague used van der Vesses and the great South African number nine, unfortunately no longer here. He was at Murrayfield along with Ewan McDonald and I was in the same room with these guys and saw the kind of state that they were in because, as we know, Ewan can't do very much for himself and used was in a kind of bad way himself. He couldn't really speak, couldn't move, he was wheelchair-bound, had to get fed. So, so with that, I had an understanding but not a reality of what was going on behind the scenes. And after Mitchell, when I got diagnosed, it was quite a shock and disappointed in a lots of ways of the help that patients with MND receive. Because when I got diagnosed some three years ago, before Christmas, um, it took maybe about six months and I was quite lucky. It was quite a quick diagnosis. Some people can go on length there, but it's, it's actually thinking that you've got MND or not. And a lot of people maybe don't realise if they fall over or lose strength or one thing or another, their speech begins to get a little bit slower. What's about and actually go and see the doctor. They maybe 
think of other things. So as soon as I got to see the doctor, then six months, and again, Martin might come on to this, there's not a one-off test to say you've got MND. We had to go through a, a function of tests to really discriminate that you don't have MND, so lumbar punctures, shock therapy, I think it was called, various blood tests, brain scans. We mentioned this before, they couldn't find anything <laughs> there before you see it. And then the deduction, if everything's clear on these tests, you've got MND. And from that on, the journey has been quite scathing because you would expect in a doctor's environment, and this is where I've been quite disappointed, that the doctor or the professor who gives you the terrible news to say, look, try and get a hold of this, use this drug, use this exercise. It might prolong or help you with MND, but there's been nothing you've got. I call it self-cure. So you get sent home, you say, look, I'm so sorry, you've got MND. There's your care now. She'll look after you in due course. Bye. And that's basically the contact I've had with my professor. I don't know if other people have felt the same. So you go home, you get on the dreaded Google, and you've got to find your own solution. And I don't personally agree with that because we've not got medical background, as I say. Sure. I'm an H&D in farming, that's as close as I've got, and you don't really get a lot of help, so it's lovely. We are very fortunate, Jill, to have lovely people like Martin and all the rest of the professors in the forum, so we've got the best team behind me, but there's a lot of people out there that don't have that luxury and don't have that help, so it's lovely today to speak about things that can maybe, I understand there's no drugs, but there's a lot of things that can maybe prolong the M&D. Yeah, I think it depends who you're dealing with. I think, you know, it's, it's like anywhere in the world, it's the person that is delivering your care and it's like any service that you receive around the world. You get great service places and, sure. and it's a very personal experience, isn't it, Martin? Yeah, I mean, Dolly actually has encapsulated it perfectly about the, the issue we have with diagnosis. We might get onto this later, but I'm absolutely of the view that, you know, majority of, of, of people I see with MND have generally been very fit people. So when something happens, they're not going to be thinking that this is something very serious. And then they get into a cycle, as, as you've, you've explained, whereby they're being told that they're having a lot of tests done. And if all those tests are normal, then they've got one of the most serious conditions known to humanity, which is just a totally counterintuitive thing that you, you would be diagnosed on the basis of normal tests. And seeing a specialist neurologist takes time and then a specialist MND neurologist takes time. Um, there's also an issue, I think, in education of general practitioners. They're maybe going to see one case in a lifetime. And we've done a lot of work to try and particularly older patients who present with speech slurring, they often get sent to uh, the stroke clinic uh, or to the ENT doctors. Uh, and that is an education issue, actually. I think we've got to lay that firmly at the door of how we teach medical students about neurology um, and how long we teach them for. Currently, it's four weeks in, in five years. Uh, it needs to be longer. And then at primary care level, so that people get to a neurologist uh, sooner and they can start uh, you know, taking those steps that we'll talk about. See, the only issue, if it is a quicker... You're diagnosed faster, but actually there's no there's no remedy of a solution, which is quite disappointing at the moment. And that was my annoyance, yeah, the diagnosis with the rugby. I pretty much knew I had the MND, so when they officially told me, it wasn't a shock. The biggest shock was that I got no help or advice from the professionals that I expected a bit of help from. And also my professional said I would not walk into his surgery in a year's time. And looking back on that, quite disappointed that he sees a lot of patients who should understand the condition and the person maybe a lot better. These are the, the areas, I think, that MND patients... So we could go on to see... So on the self-curing, as I call it, there's been a lot of people that have been phoning and help me. So I'm currently on a chiropractor, seeing once, twice a week. Again, it's very difficult. We talked about this. If I hadn't seen the chiropractor, would I be in a similar position as I am now? I just really don't know because there's no medical controls to tell me otherwise. But what he's got, Martin, and what he says is quite a, not a clever idea, but it's the fluid around the brain that, I can't remember what that was called, cerebellum, is it? Cerebrospinal fluid. Yes. Yep. It goes down your spinal cord and things. If at some stage in your life that has been sort of stopped for some reason, it's a like a, a small river that has been blocked up. You get stagnant water, you get a bit of cerebellum's not moving, it's not going round your body how it should. There's a bit of poison stuff to it, like you could see in a bit of stagnant water. 
So what he's done and he's trying to do is, is really correct my body to allow the flow of this fluid to continue around. And I think that's quite a good idea. That's had an issue and I think certainly it's slowed my condition down quite dramatically. But it might not work on everybody. I also go swimming once a week, which I find very helpful. Um, although I use polystyrene weights, which doesn't sound too tough, but allows my body to, to do things in a pool that won't do in dry land, like hop, skip, jump, uh, go into the crucifix position because I can't lift my hands up very high. And also see a deep a sports massager who goes into my neck at the moment and really goes into the muscles and tries to get rid of all the so little knots so allowed the free movement and I think that on the basis of taking some protein tablets and a wee bit of enjoyment and doing this keep active has allowed me to keep living for over the average time. Yeah, so I think that all of those things, the unifying uh, aspect there is the physical therapy and keeping your joints supple, keeping you moving. Uh, and, and I think there's, there is an increasing body of evidence to suggest that that's a useful thing. We know also there's, a, there's an idea of activating different pathways in the brain. And it's something we see very strikingly in Parkinson's, for example, where actually dance therapy now is something which you know is routine and, and some GP practices can actually be prescribed. And what you're doing there is distracting the brain and activating pathways through other other methods. And keeping active like that is is definitely something that makes a big difference. So should we get him dancing? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> I think I think Parkinson's. I've slightly... seen him dance. <laughs> <laughs> not sure that's well as it's not pretty. <laughs> do you explain and talk to your patients when you diagnose them to do these activities? Yeah, we, we go through a list of, of their questions, sometimes not at the initial diagnosis. It, you know, it, it, Sometimes people are coming for a second or third opinion, but sometimes it's very raw, and we, so we'll meet up perhaps two or four weeks but can after. I, sorry for but then the, the initial diagnosis is, is the main diagnosis. And I know when I got told my diagnosis my good lady took it a different way she was quite emotional because she was always hoping it wasn't MND mm. I had a very good idea it was so if my professor at the time said look big fella I'm so sorry you've got this MND here's your care nurse they'll help you in due course but here's a list of activities mm. that can you can get involved with it hopefully will prolong your disease would have been a great benefit for me instead of saying right cheerio there's nothing we can do yeah what we try and do in in our clinic is we have some resources that people can go to on our website the common questions about rilizole and other other medications adaptations to housing and activity and exercise but also we give them a pack detailing all the different types of research that are going on and i think you're right that providing a mixture of information about things they can do, support networks like the MND Association, but also about research because people want to take part in research um, is something that... Uh, you it's know, the timing be- of all these things as well, Martin, I would imagine, because if you're diagnosed, it's a, it's a big diagnosis, a massive diagnosis. So throwing all that information all at once to the patient at that time might not be the best thing. So some patients want it all then and some patients will say, I just need to digest all this first. And then and then the offer to come back to find that information might be the best thing for those patients. But you're correct, Sean. I think on the back of that, it's all about positive thinking. And at the moment, what you're saying, Martin, is I think a similar picture throughout the UK, what patients get given, have a look on the website. Now, why should a patient have to go and have a look on the website? I'm not picking at you because at least there's some information there available. I didn't get that. I got nothing to accept, right? Cheerio, we'll see you in three months. And you get told the diagnosis, you go on Google, they see your life expectancy uh, for the average one is between one and three years with MND. You get told you're not going to walk into the practice within 12 months. And being a professional sportsman, that was quite a concern. Mm. So to be given, it's like when you go for a, a cold or a flu, to be saying, right, we can't help you, goodbye, cheerio, come back in a week, we'll give you some remedy. You're looking for a fix. And what was the great saying? If you've got a problem, find a solution. So to let the patient know there is a fix directly from the professor, like we call that kind of pathway at the moment, try this, do this. It will not cure your issue, but it may give you a longer standing. I think the problem is quite often in different parts, it's very different experience in different parts of the country frankly. So, you know, depending where you 
given this diagnosis. And mm. and also, and we can talk about this, Martin, no two patients are the same, but the patient pathway that you mentioned is something that we've been talking about in Scotland and, and it's something that we're in an open dialogue and stakeholders within Scotland are coming together so that we can create some kind of patient pathway that's relative to today, how we live today and the Scotland that people live in today and the resource that's available. And I think that's really important because it is something, and you know, I think the easiest way for people to access that often is through the website, frankly, because that's what people have at home. Or, But I think the geographical nature of the UK is a very different experience wherever you go. But what I wanted to ask was the difficulty you have as a neurologist and as somebody who is treating patients with MND is the different way it can affect different individuals because it manifests itself so differently in different people, doesn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. It's largely a, a disease of um, of older adults, but Dottie's a good example of where that's not always the case. We regard you as young. Um, and so there is an age, age variation. And also it may begin in speech. It may begin with the hand. It may begin with the foot. Much more rarely it may begin with uh, what we call higher brain functions uh, to do with personality and behavior. That's much more unusual, though, and sometimes breathing. And what we're trying to do early on is get a sense of how fast the disease is moving in an individual, because I think it, it interacts with their body and their, their the sort of architecture of their, their nervous system. And the pace of change tends to be rather fixed for a person. And so we want to get a sense, really, of, of how fast it's moving so we can guide them and help them plan. And for some people, as you've already mentioned, it can be very much more aggressive. And for others, it's actually very important to say, look, actually, I don't think this is moving as fast as, as it might. There's time to plan. There's, you don't need to make any rapid decisions. Engaging all of that at the first visit, a lot of it's possible, but sometimes we have to see people again and sometimes another time over the first sort of six to 12 months to get a full sense of that. Because Eust, you know, we followed Eust's progress and his decline. And Jared Cunningham was another rugby player who suffered from motor neuron disease. And they lived for a period of time, but not the length of time that we see, for instance, Professor Stephen Hawking, yeah. perhaps yeah. the most famous uh, MND patient sufferer that, that people will have heard of. I think that confuses people sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so it's this idea of sort of terms like average, mean and median. And I'll just try and explain a little bit of those that if we took half of the patients, uh, all the patients, and unfortunately, the disease runs its course within three years from symptom onset, which is really one of the most devastating conditions there is. But actually, the other half, the other 50%, the other side of the median, those patients can go out to a very, very long period of time, and sometimes into a, certainly a second decade, and sometimes much longer, and right at the extreme, someone like Stephen Hawking. Now, actually, if you take all the data from maybe five, six, seven thousand patients, which we've done, and you put it into a mathematical model, you actually see that it's possible to have those rare outliers like Stephen Hawking, um, who have ALS, MND, but you also see that for majority, it fits that that first pattern. So we have to tailor the advice um, depending on how we see things develop in the first year or so. And if you are somebody who has what you would describe as slow progressing MND, can you suddenly become somebody who's got fast attacking MND. You know, can you change between the two? It's very unusual. Largely speaking, it, it's rather fixed. And so it's something we want to obviously say to people very early on, if their disease is slower than average, we don't expect it to speed up. That's a really important thing. But, you know, I have to also have the difficult conversations and I'm not doing my job properly. If someone looks me in the eye and says, look, this is moving very fast. Do you think it might slow down? I have to be honest with them and say, we have to plan at least that that won't be the case and take it from there. And tell me, the other question that we get asked often is, and we, we receive lots of questions and emails from people which we can't often answer, but we pass it on to people like yourselves or to MND Association or MND Scotland, who are a wonderful resource for, for families, is um, my father has been diagnosed with MND. Is it yeah. more likely that I'll yeah. now be diagnosed? Or sometimes we have families where they've had three members of the same family mm. given the same mm. diagnosis, which seems particularly cruel. So is it hereditary? Um, does it follow through people's genes? What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, overall, um, all conditions have some genetic component. And in MND, for most patients, it's a very small part of it. So there are uh, around about 10% of our patients who will be able to say to us, there is someone very clearly in my family, perhaps 
two generations where this condition has happened. We've also realised that we have to cover another condition called frontotemporal dementia, which is quite a, a rare type of dementia, certainly not as common as Alzheimer's, but that's a linked condition. It has the same genetic background. And although most people either get motor neuron disease or frontotemporal dementia, occasionally there are both together. But in the family, if we see either of those conditions, then that would be a positive family history. And so we, we've dug a little bit deeper now when we ask families um, and ask patients, and we definitely do find now there are more families where we're a bit more suspicious. But it's still riding around about 10-15%. So for the other 85%, there is no one else they can identify in the family. And when we follow those people, we don't see that the, the risk to their children is appreciably different from the general population. If you look at the maths, there's a very slight increase. It's, it's so tiny that in absolute terms, we can say, look, it's generally the same as the general population. So it's not zero. Anyone can get MND. So, so that's reassuring, I think, for, for most patients. In those people who do have a family history, when we look for the genetic cause, we can find a single gene error, a single change in a gene in about two-thirds of those people. Um, and so we can give them information then about which gene is, is driving this. It starts to help us access some of the newer treatments that target these genes, which is a very, very exciting development. Um, but there are still a group of people we were saying, well, we know it's hereditary, but we, we can't tell you what the precise cause of that is. I think the bigger picture, what's happening in, the, in most patients, is probably what we call a multi-step, multi-hit process. So several things, and if you model it in a mathematical way, probably six things have to happen over your lifetime. Now, if you have a genetic abnormality, probably three or four of those six steps are taken care of already. So only a couple of extra things have to happen, which makes it more likely you'll get MND. But if you haven't got a, a strong genetic drive, you're going to have to have those six things happen. And that's going to be very rare. It's not going to happen very often, those six things. They're probably not necessarily the same six things for everyone. Some of them may be related to trauma. Some of them may be related to aspects of lifestyle, but no strong factors that we can identify. And did you, when you were diagnosed early, knowing Eust and Jared, and, and it seemed, and Rob Burrow has been diagnosed, um, and you know, we hear of sportsmen, sportswomen given this diagnosis, and, and anecdotally, it seems to be that they seem to, that, that they're fit healthy, active individuals in younger age seem to be given this diagnosis. Did you think there was any link originally between being given this diagnosis and your career as a, as a sportsman? I didn't, Jill, no. But looking back and maybe taking Martin and I had a discussion before we started the programme here, I was involved in a rugby game at Newcastle Falcons some four years ago, um, just before the World Cup and got a bad hip injury, a hematoma in my hip. It's the worst injury I've ever had in the rugby days. I think it was sorry to say I was too old to play. But with that, that might have been an area that triggered my MND. I really don't know because not long after that, I thought I got my hand caught in the door and kind of lost a bit of power. thought I broke a bone and went, okay, I'll okay be Monday. But wasn't and uh, went on for maybe six months thinking it'll be fine, lose the power, that never for one minute thought I'd MND till my skin started twitching. And with that Google these two two areas in the computer and it came up with M and D it's a question I get asked all the time with regard to the foundation is what is the link between rugby, first of all, then then trauma to the head. It's and then, usually people talk about trauma to the head, yes. not a hematoma on the head. No, no, exactly. And and um, and then athleticism generally. Um, and the conversations we've all had with, with Pam Shaw, um, and there's a great interest then, and there's, I think, quite in, interesting uh, associations with athleticism that Martin will... Well, I think more of what we talk about is more that what Martin's just explained. Uh, there's a lot of young ladies who are who have and have got MND now who has never played rugby. Yeah. And that's where I looked as well. So playing rugby is not going to give you MND, but being part of the six things that you maybe mentioned yeah. have a big part to play, which is quite interesting. If we look at large numbers of patients and look for commonalities in their profession, there's been sort of three hits over the years, um, agricultural work, um, professional football, and military service. And for each of those, we can develop 
really simple hypotheses and, and patients will come to us and say, well, you know, is it the pesticides if I was in agricultural work? The footballers might worry about heading the football and the military service may talk about extreme activity or perhaps with the Gulf War, for example, certain uh, medical procedures and things that they had. Now, as a, as a scientist, I would say, well, I have to find something that unifies all of those. And you rightly point out that half the patients are female who would be generally underrepresented, uh, present in those professions. And I come to the conclusion that it's probably a surrogate for fitness. So all of those professions probably um, select for people who are generally quite fit. Now, my view, I think the, the, the two views are either that exercise and activity is somehow driving this disease, causing it in some people, um, my own view is that it's probably that we're seeing it's more likely to happen in someone um, who happens to be of that sort of build, that kind of metabolism. It's not the cause, it's an association. So teasing that apart is difficult. I think if we went to extremes and say, well, are there Olympic athletes who are training to ridiculous levels, unbelievable levels, are we seeing a lot of MND in that group? No. So we're not getting a sense of a dose-dependent uh, cause here. What I think is perhaps if your motor and nervous system is put together like a Ferrari, perhaps if it's it's a very everybody's laughing here. So you know perhaps <laughs> I'm sorry. That's more likely. We've heard you described as many things, Dot. But a Ferrari? When you're younger, you're more likely to exercise because you find you can do it. You're good at it. So you find yourself in that, that sort of situation, and that might be more likely that you're going to do that when you're older, when most of us perhaps are dropping off an exercise. Now, that just might simply mean that whatever's going wrong more generally as we age, back to these cells and how they manage these proteins, it might simply be that during the process of activity and injury, you're putting a lot of stress on your body. That's the nature of living. We all have to do that. It's part of just getting on with our lives. But it may be that the motor system just becomes a bit more accessible if it's highly tuned and finely tuned. It's not causing any damage. It's not the cause of the condition, but it might in some way be a little bit more easy for it to get access to that area. So I absolutely see it as an association. I don't tell people in families who are relatives to stop exercising. I think that it's an association. It's something we should look at to understand the risk factors. Finally tuned Ferrari. I like that, Jill. I never, that never, in, never in doubt. But can I ask you a thing? Because I think a, a lot of people who's maybe listening to this, we understand the problem and the issue that you very kindly described there. What do you think is the solution? If For your patients, what, what advice do you give them at the moment? How do they stop it? How do, would you advise to prolong the issue? What can advice? I think it's just what, can, how can you enhance their quality of life? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think, and, and I think quality of life is, it sounds an obvious thing, but it is a really important aspect. And, and I do want to understand what that means to individuals. You know, that, that is a really, really important thing. I want to, when the dust has settled, I want to have a conversation. What are the things that you want to do with the time that you have? And then if, if it's very clear that it's, I want to take everything I can find to slow this disease down, I totally get that. And then we'll talk about what's proven, things like Rilizol, uh, proven in a clinical trial. We'll talk about the variety of additional sort of physical measures that you've been talking about, keeping yourself active. Would you think the enhance, you think that patients should be doing this? Yeah. exercise and the I think so. I think not pushing themselves to new limits. If, if they've been used to exercising, I don't think they should stop. I think if... They perhaps haven't done a lot of exercise. It's worth keeping just gentle things moving. Things like swimming, low-level low sort of uh, exercise is very, very helpful. If we get on to, you know, should I take experimental things that I've read about on the internet, then I try and frame that in, in with three types of harm that can happen. One is physical harm. Now, most things that people take don't harm them. They just don't make them any better. But undoubtedly, it's possible to buy things now on the internet that can cause very serious physical harm and there's no way I'm ever going to recommend that. No disease is worth feeling worse for. Financial harm is not my place to, to say, but I can advise someone that they can end up spending a lot of money on things. And that goes back to what they want to do with their time. And just to weigh up going off to have an experimental therapy halfway around the world, um, even if it's run very safely, versus is, you know, is that what they want to do with their money? Just to think about that but it's not my place to tell them. And the third one is emotional harm. So if somebody is saying to you, I've got something that the doctors don't have. But can I, can yeah. I tell you, you yeah. say it's not your place, and sorry to ask this, if you're 
were my professor, yeah. I would prefer the honest advice to say no, yes, yeah. do that or do not do that. And that's what I think we need sometime as well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There are people who say, you know, that's why I've come to you. Uh, you know, like when you take your car to the mechanic, I want you to tell me yeah. what's wrong and get on and fix it. So absolutely. And I think um, I will generally say to people, if there is no uh, clear scientific evidence for trying something, uh, it's just a hunch or somebody's opinion on the internet, then my advice is not to do that. And can you advise, because Sean, I say again, this is where I'm very lucky to have the team we are behind, and I get quite a lot of these internet requests to myself. If a patient gets these requests, do you have an area that you should go and maybe look at and get advice? How would they look at their own medical advice to see if they're a benefit or not? Yeah, I think that, that that is something that we can do a bit better on. But there are some good resources. I think that the uh, ALS TDI, the MND Association, uh, the ALS Association in, in the US, they have a lot of uh, information about trials that are registered and new and up-and-coming drugs and information about them. And I think weighing all of that up. Online communities, though, are, are fabulous. I think that's been such a massive benefit of the internet so for example and there's lots of them now but there, there was a site patientslikeme.com where you could register and say you know i'm a 48 year old male with mnd it started here um, in this month and this year and you could see straight away a, 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 another group of people exactly the same as you and you can see what they've chosen to say that they're taking whether they think it's helping them um, and weigh it up yourself and that that sort of crowdsourcing of of opinion done on a large scale, I think can be very helpful. I think it's when a single individual, very well-meaning, but might say, look, I'm convinced that I'm cured. I've been doing this. That needs more scrutiny. Um, and that, that's when I have concerns. And we get a lot of that um, uh, over, the, uh, over the months and years where people either um, quite uh, annoyingly saying the same thing again, you know, Dottie should do this, Dottie should do that. And we've obviously looked through these things and they've been complete quackery or, or, or a real money-making exercise, as you said, somewhere halfway, halfway around the world. And it's, it's, it is difficult for patients who don't have the resource to be able to check all these things out. What, what do you do? Because everyone wants to cling on to something. I think it's also important to say the, the foundation is very separate to Doddy's care. So sure. we're, what, what we're talking about today is generally MND with Doddy sharing his personal experiences. What we as a foundation do is raise funds to fund research and to help families coping with this. Doddy very kindly champions that, but also is very giving and sharing of his own experience. And I think that's got such value to other people who are in a similar situation to to, to you. Well, gentlemen, I can say it all, all helps me as well with other when I meet other MND patients. They're able to help me. Uh, so adapt to where we are. We, we talked about like zips, for example. I have a key ring on my zip, which makes it a lot easier to pull up and pull down. Uh, and it's all this positive sort of attitude that able to do what, keep continuing to do what you're doing. So plastic laces allow me to put my shoes on and off still. And a few other areas, like I've got new dishes at home that I can still eat myself and do myself. I think what we want to just perhaps bring together uh, towards the end of this episode is, is and, and Sean, I think it was a great suggestion, some of the some of Doddy's tips, because, you know, I think it's just, you mentioned some of the practical things that you've been doing, but also some of the other interventions that people use with MND to enhance their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, and and we, we know about some of them. Doddy wears a neck brace more often now because it helps with the stability of your neck, uh, but you've come up with other different bits and pieces that you use, I think. And people constantly ask, what is Doddy doing? We saw some some shots of you having injections, for instance, in the, the Doddy documentary. And people say, well, well, what was that? What was Doddy having injected? Is this some, some magic elixir that he has sourced from somewhere? Or, the wife loved doing it. I and I've seen you take oh. some of these really gunky green drinks that don't look very healthy either. That's Guinness. That's Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's just run through some of the things that you've tried, some of the things oh, Jill, that you've found effective. We have. I think it's, it's more of a mental issue you've got. My chiropractor, who's very good at, I think, what he's doing, but also mentally, saying to me, if you don't use, you lose. And with MND, I've taken that on board to say, if we don't keep exercising, but not too much, a certain amount. And also... My idea about it is keep positive at all times. And if there's a problem, find a solution. 
And uh, because there is no drugs at the moment for the patient to get involved in, so try not let MND affect your life as much as it can do. So we mentioned the laces. I can't do any laces anymore. So what I do, I've got rubber laces that I put on my shoes so I can slip them on. So I can still do that so I can tell MND, look, I can still put my shoes on. So I wear tracksuit bottoms quite a lot more now because doing a a button-up is quite tricky, but when I go out, I have, as I mentioned before, a keyring on my zip, which allows my fingers to pull my zip down uh, a lot easier. You mentioned the neck brace. I've got a new neck brace, and Martin might be able to tell more detail what it's called, but I find it very helpful. I've got a stack cup, which I'm able to continue my drinking because to try and drink a cup of tea is quite tricky, but if you use one of these travel mugs or a handle, I can use that, and also it goes on to, to uh, take it out with me so I can drink beer, Guinness. <laughs> Which actually, joking aside, man. Right, here we go. Sean, here we go. <laughs> and, and I don't want everyone to go on to this, but I think, as we mentioned, my sort of caring regime might be bespoke to myself. But I do find a little bit of Guinness and red wine very enhancing and has helped my condition. But obviously in moderation because if you've got to try and get upstairs with too much, it's quite tricky because I tend to fall over and can't use my hands so just watch what you're doing. So other areas, because I can still drive, I go out to help with the farm. Again, I've adapted a little bit and bought a new machine so I can still go and feed the sheep. And really all of these areas, Jill, are just trying to not allow MND into my life. So, for example, today, to come up today was, was great fun. Good lady has to help me a bit more. But I think if you keep the mind fresh, keep active, I do think it makes a big difference in trying to control. And just maybe slow down the issue, because as I mentioned before, we do a bit of chiropractic. So things helped a bit swimming, uh, all in moderation. I do a bit of gym work as well and also go and see a physio. And when you go in the pool, our good friend Mary, who's a physiotherapist, helps in the pool and sometimes Hamish or Ben or one of the boys would be in the pool with you because it's, you know, you need to care, you need care in the pool. Do, yes. I think more now, uh, just especially over the last six months, a bit more care and attention to the way we're doing what we're, what we're up to. So getting in and out of taxis, down steps is quite tricky. Uh, just is maybe even eating the fatigue uh, has come in a little bit so I can maybe give myself 10 loads of food and then that'll be about it because the old handshake a little bit unless I'm a little bit of a breather. So the symptoms are certainly there at the moment, but we're adapting to them and we're trying to fight them just now. But keeping active, I think, I'm sure there's a lot of websites, but it's just trying to think on your feet. If you've got a problem, then there is solutions out there and that's the biggest thing. And keep active. So I think doing the campaign, I have to thank everyone who's maybe listening to this. Being part of the foundation has been amazing for me. It's kept me going, kept me active and kept me thinking away from MND. I think the positivity is amazing. I think you epitomize what's needed because, and also in other diseases, there's good evidence that having a good mental attitude towards your disease is extremely beneficial. And what we, I mean, even last night at the unveiling of, of the, of the portrait, you know, your, your positivity abounds and it's fantastic to see. I think it's really, really good and really, I'm sure very helpful for you. Sean, I think you, you're spot on with positivity and where we are and there's probably a lot to do. And an example would be we lost mum because mum was fighting cancer at a similar time. I was fighting M&D over the two years. So I lost her in June. And what she did, she was in the palliative care unit. She gave away her engagement ring to my niece. So as soon as that changeover was done, you could see that her headspace had d- disappeared. And that, and that positivity had gone. She'd given up the fight for life. And within three or four days, she was no longer here. So to everyone, think positive. There is someone around the corner. 2020 is going to be a good year. We're going to ex- discuss this in the next episode. But it is, it's, it's getting up with a smile on your face. Because the other thing is, when I am, there's a lot of pe- people worse off. So appreciate what you've got and where you're going, which I think is quite a nice statement as well. But more of do what you can do is, as soon as you get the diagnosis, crack on and get the tick list done. I just wanted to add one thing um, that uh, certainly to echo this idea of having a you know a sense of purpose, which is so easy to see with you, is is getting access to a multidisciplinary team. 
and I do feel strongly about this. I think it's something the association, MND Association, has, has worked really hard on, um, is to ensure that all patients who are diagnosed with this condition can see a group of individuals, including an occupational therapist, such as to give you all the tips that you've had about dressing and all those sorts of things, physiotherapist, speech and language therapist, dietitian, respiratory, all of those things, and yet sometimes a neurologist. But access to that care is really, really important. And I, and I, and I think all people living with this should contact the MND Association to find out where their nearest care centre is and certainly to visit it at least once, if not regularly. But... Martin, on that, uh, positivity is very important, but uh, there was a couple of neurologists who, I don't know what your advice may be, have asked me to put a peg in my tummy, this was about a year ago, mm. and also sleep with an oxygen mask. Now, my thoughts of that are no. As you can see, I've not done it, and I don't, don't speak to my neurologist anymore because I think the negativity was too great. And the reason why I said no, because they said the fitter you are, the better you recover from the operation. The reason I said no was because then M&D would be affecting my life. And I don't want that to happen. It's like wearing glasses. Once you start wearing glasses, you never go back to not wearing glasses. That's because you need glasses. You know. Well, there is a bit of that, and that's the same. But Joe, you're spot on. When I, when I can't eat and I'm struggling with my eating habits and breathing habits, then yes... I therefore go and have a mask and therefore go and have a mm. peg in my tummy. Not because I'm fit and not because I'm active at the moment. So you're right what you're saying about glasses. You get glasses when you need them, not when... But there's uh, a balance of of the evidence around when you should do that. And But that's a personal thing. Exactly you know, right. And I think it thing. is a personal thing. And that's why you should be the person to uh, make that decision. Yeah. Well, it is. And I think this is what I'm trying to say as well. That the doctors and everyone out there should look upon the patient on a bespoke basis. And I sometimes don't think that happens. They don't analyse and really understand the patient's needs. Because I said this more than once to this said neurologist that I don't want it. They kept on going, so I said, look. But that's a really I'm good example. Those two are, are, are really brilliant examples of personal choice because as a good friend of yours and, and someone that's, that's uh, I would recommend those those two things that you do straight away. Um, but it's a personal choice. because and I, and I completely understand where you're coming from in terms of the not wanting to be governed by your disease. Um, to, I completely understand Headspace. it. Yeah, so I get it, I get it. And you talked about the injections there that were, were on the documentary and Martin and I again spoke about it and Sean spoke about this. There'll be 12 vitamin injections that were recommended from America. So my good lady uh, very kindly was quite pleased to administer. <laughs> so every day we had to inject myself, self-inject. And I didn't think they had uh, an advantage. I saw more of a de decline in a month after taking them. And that's why I sort of came off, got a bit slower, got a bit weaker, a bit more fatigue and came off. Now, I don't know if that's because, and some uh, professors uh, mentioned it's the trauma of injecting yourself outweighs from the benefits. Sometimes I don't know if that's the case. From that, I felt no benefit, but willing to try for a month and saw no benefit and I haven't been on them since. No, I think that's, uh, you know, that's entirely kind of understood and, and it's not something that we, we think has a, a clear benefit, but you tried it and, and that was the outcome. Um, I, I think that um, just to go back to what you were you were saying earlier about, about a PEG. Like, explain what the PEG is, yeah. Martin, so for a, those that might a, not know. It stands for a percutaneous through the skin, that means endoscopic, meaning that you're using a telescope to look down into the stomach when you do it. Uh, gastrostomy, which is a means a, a hole in the stomach. So you're placing, uh, instead of this long tube that you have between your mouth and your stomach called the esophagus, uh, which isn't very safe because it runs past your airway, you're placing a much shorter two-centimeter uh, bridging gap between your, its stomach wall and straight into your, uh, into your stomach itself. And the purpose of that is? And the purpose is to make sure that you keep someone's nutrition up who is slowed down on their eating. Two things that I think are really important to get on the table straight away. It's not when you have a peg that you have to stop eating in the normal way. You can do both. But it allows people to concentrate on just eating the things they like and they like the taste of because food and eating is so much more than just simply nutrition. But 
it's also not something we do to stop people choking to death. People are very worried about that. That doesn't happen uh, as, a, as, a, as a thing in MND. Uh, choking is sometimes something that people experience, but we're not doing it to prevent that uh, ending someone's life. So getting it in advance of, uh, of more uh, serious disability is important to consider but we are getting better at doing it at a later stage. So I think there is a compromise here. And I think there are many people who weigh it up and say, look, you know, thanks for all the advice, but actually I don't want it. And I have to say, I think it's often people who are, um, for whom their body and their physical fitness and appearance has been very important. It's been part of their life and they don't like the idea of something physical. I totally get that. There is another psychological way of looking at it though. You see it as perhaps thinking that you're giving in to the condition. I would put it to you that you're um, uh, staying one step ahead. So you're you're actually in control and you're keeping ahead of the condition. So it's just a different way of looking at it. No, but that is very true. And I think you highlighted there, man. It's, it's up to the patient how they see it. And the benefit with that is for the, the doctor to explain what's out there, what's available, and for the patient to listen to see what's going on and then obviously grasp it if they'd like to go and do it. And sometimes they don't think that explanation of all the activities are there for people, but there's a few websites, have you mentioned, that people can hear of what's going on. They're still not going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I think, listen, we have covered a lot of ground in that episode, uh, and I think we're going to take a a pause and and, and just have a think about um, what we'd like to talk about next, which is, I I think, research and, and what the foundation has been doing and what's been happening in the research community. And as we've got Martin here, I think we're going to keep hold of him for our next episode and, and talk about that. But in the meantime, just to say a huge thank you to Professor Martin Turner, to Sean McGrath uh, and to Doddy uh, for coming along and, and sharing a, a lot of your own personal experiences there. And, uh, you know, I think it the fact that you're so open and candid about your life and how you live with such a debilitating disease and prog- uh, progressive degenerative disease is you know, fantastic for other patients. And sometimes it's not easy for you, but it's certainly of massive value. So we appreciate that enormously. Uh, also, huge thanks to Tim Groves, our wonderful producer, who is with us, mm. and uh, to Rugby Pass for the platform and the ability to share the podcast with you, the Dodcast, and to our friends at Aberdeen Standard Investments for supporting us with our Dodcast. Thank you very much. Doddy Weir, there they are, driving on, keeping the ball alive. When he goes like that, he's like a mad giraffe, but he's got great skills.